Well, uh, although my wife and I are first-timers in mainstream, I didn't stand up and whatnot because I get to do it now. <laughs> so my wife, Leanne, is sitting back in the corner, uh, waving her hand. Um, if you've ever um, um, wanted to meet the most wonderful person on earth, I can arrange it. Uh, in fact, you can just go do it yourself right at the end of the, the uh, time today. Um, as, as far as how I came to Grace Church, I'm kind of a newbie. Um, I've only been at Grace Church since 1975. <laughs> so I'm kind of still trying to f- feel my way around. Um, but I, I, it's actually an interesting story, which I won't take time to tell because um, I don't have time, uh, as to why I first came here. But suffice to say, I came here uh, because I wasn't supposed to. And so um, if any of you are interested in that at some point, uh, you can invite me back and I'll just tell that story. Um, <clears throat> I was a little curious with Rodney, you know, talking about the seasons and so forth and a change of season, how much he appreciates it, because we have change of season all the time in Southern California. We went from basketball season to baseball season. <laughs> now we're in football season. And those are a lot better than the seasons I came from in the Midwest, um, in my opinion. So, um, <clears throat> all right. Um, so this morning, we want to talk about, or at least I want to talk about, we'll see if you want to or not, um, want to talk about how to live biblically in political society. Now, the reason I'm talking about this is because this is what Rodney asked me to talk about. And so that's what we're, that's what we're doing. You know, and, and, and it's, a real, it's a real privilege to uh, come to mainstream. You've got some people in here that I have great respect for, people like Brad Armstrong and Carlos Chung and, of course, the legendary Urbusnitz. Uh, and so it's a privilege to be able to speak to you this morning, and whether you're privileged or not remains to be seen. Um, let me just say before we begin that we had an election uh, recently, and I prepared this message before the election, and I didn't change a thing after the election, because the relationship of believers to political society is not dependent on individual elections in the United States of America in 2020. Uh, it's not dependent on who the president of the United States is or who controls the Senate or anything else. Uh, that's irrelevant as far as how believers are to uh, behave politically uh, in society, or biblically, rather, in political society. So let's get into it. And um, I don't have a, a, a set passage, although we'll sort of be spending time in Romans 13, as some of you might anticipate. Some of you know that Romans 13 is the most concise uh, and complete uh, passage, arguably, in the Bible concerning politics. We'll also look a little bit at, um, in the Old Testament as well, in 1 Samuel, and some other passages along the way. But as I sort of tell my, my government class when we go over this, Romans 13 will sort of be like our base camp. You know, people who climb mountains, they have a base camp and then they take day trips out from there. And so Romans 13 will be sort of our base camp, uh, but we'll take day trips out to other passages um, and because this is an overview kind of thing, we're not going to do a lot of in-depth, um, you know, explication of things. We're just going to kind of touch a lot of principles and highlight a few things along the way. So I hope, um, I hope nonetheless that, that you find it profitable. All right, so to begin with, uh, to begin with, we're going to see if this works. There we go. 
begin with, uh, just a few general comments. Political involvement is perfectly proper. Um, Many moons ago, I don't know how many of you remember this. Uh, I see a few gray hairs in the room. Prior to 1976, most evangelical Christians did not vote. Most evangelical Christians did not vote, did not hold public office. And they believed that there was something dirty, unclean about politics. Uh, There were three events that changed that. And so by 1976, uh, in a a short space of time, and so by 1976, evangelicals started voting and started getting very involved in politics. But just, um, just to start with, political involvement is perfectly proper. There's nothing in the Bible that says we shouldn't be involved in politics. Okay? If I thought there was, I wouldn't be heading the political studies major at the Masters University. Um, and so I'm not going to take time to try and demonstrate that because largely you're demonstrating a negative. I would have to show you, I'd have to go through the Bible and show you it doesn't say you can't be involved in politics. So we would be here for several days as we read through the whole Bible to see that it's not there. Um, so we'll just take that as a given. Secondly, Let me suggest to you that believers should lower their expectations from politics. Um, Believers should lower their expectations from politics. Why is that? First of all, government is created by fallen men. I teach my classes that the United States government is the best government in the history of the world, and I firmly believe that. However, I also tell them it's not perfect. It's flawed because it was created by fallen men. And furthermore, it's run by fallen, largely unredeemed men. And men here, ladies, is generic. Includes you too. Okay. Um, It's created by fallen men, and it's run largely by fallen, unredeemed men. And so there's there are problems in politics. Thirdly, there's a satanic influence in politics. Um, we're not going to take time to do this because, as I said, this is kind of a flyover. But in 1 John 5 and a number of other passages in 1 John and the Gospel of John, John talks about this a lot, Satan is the ruler of this world. Satan is the ruler of this world. John says it multiple times. Um, now, does that mean that Satan is more powerful than God, and he's an autonomous ruler of this world? No, he's a ruler of this world, just like other rulers are rulers of their domains, but all underneath the authority of God and within God's ultimate plan. And so um, Satan is the ruler of this world, meaning he has a lot of influence in this world. Um, in Daniel 10, verses 13 and 20, which I have there, we even see that that. Satan assigns demons to influence nations. And so we want to keep that in mind as well, uh, just in the background. And again, he does all of this, obviously, under the control of a sovereign providential God. But nonetheless, he is influential in government. Another thing we should know about government is that it's coercive and confiscatory by nature. Um, let's just look really quick at 1 Samuel 8. I'm going to read this really fast, <laughs> um, but I just want you to catch the drift of what's going on here. What's going on here is that the people of Israel have asked for a king, a king like the other nations. They already had a king. His name was Yahweh. But they wanted a king like the other nations, and so they asked Samuel to give them one, and Samuel went to the Lord and said, what do I do? And the Lord said, go ahead, do what they want. 
but this is something that I want you to tell them. So if you look at 1 Samuel 8, here's what I believe is the Romans 13 of the Old Testament, uh, the best passage concerning government in the Old Testament. Look at verse 10, 1 Samuel 8, if you're there. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. These are the words of the Lord. Okay, this isn't Samuel's opinion. All right? And he said, This will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. And he will take a tenth of your seed and your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now, if we were in my government class, I would do a really clever thing on the board. We're not in my government class, so I can't do the clever thing. But I would put on the board the most prominent verb, any English majors in here, the most prominent verb in this whole passage, which is what? Thank you. I emphasized it along the way in case you didn't, just to make sure. The verb all the way through here is takes, takes, takes. The king will take this, he'll take this, he'll take this. So I put the word take, you can just picture this in like your mind, man. So I put the word takes up on the board, and then I just kind of close up the K a little bit, and it becomes taxes. (laughs) Because government is coercive and confiscatory. By its nature, it's not a sermon in and of itself because there's only two CO words. I need a third one. Maybe I'll come up with it someday and and I'll have a sermon. But it is coercive and confiscatory by nature. The coercive part is the commanders of fifties and thousands and horses and so forth. It's all about military and also because people don't pay their taxes unless they're coerced. How many here would pay their taxes just because the government asked you to? Probably not too many. And those who would, I'd like to have a discussion with you. But anyway, uh, so government is coercive and confiscatory by its nature. We ought not to be shocked when government taxes us. That's what government does. Okay, Two things that the U.S. government is best at are taxing and borrowing. Um, that's the thing they've really got down. Uh, and, it's, and it's the civil government that they do this. And then the other thing to keep in mind in general concerning approaching politics is that all groups and all parties have agendas. All groups and all parties have agendas. They all want to manipulate you. They all want you to do what they want to do. No one is in it for your benefit. Well, I shouldn't say no one. No group, no party is in it for your benefit. There are individuals, maybe but not too many. So we have to lower our expectations concerning politics, all right? That's sort of uh, point number one, I guess. Now, the next question is, where is your trust? This is what I've been saying for the last, when was Tuesday, five days ago, six days ago? That's what I've been saying since Monday of this past week, the day before the election, which, by the way, 
uh, just to show how much I know, I thought Donald Trump had a better than even chance of winning the election. Whatever. Um, But since Monday before the election and ever since Tuesday, I've been telling everybody who wants to hear, where is your trust? That's the fundamental issue. That's why I didn't change a thing in this message. Because fundamentally, for believers, our trust should be in God, not in politics, not in a political system, not even in a wonderful political system like the United States has had. So excessive concern for or excessive confidence in political solutions is improper. And again, I could take you through all the way through the Bible for this. One of my classes, we go through everything the Bible says about government and politics, and it takes a little over half the semester. Um, but excessive concern for or excessive confidence in political solutions is improper. Our trust needs to be in the Lord. There's nothing wrong with being involved in politics. There's nothing wrong with putting a certain amount of trust in politics, but excessive concern or excessive trust, just like excessive concern or excessive trust in anything else but the Lord is wrong and improper and, frankly, sinful. Another thing that I'd want to just clear up, um, I don't know how many times I've had this discussion with certain people, there is no mandate in Scripture to participate in government or politics. We have no mandate in Scripture. And again, to prove it, I'd have to take you through all the Bible and show you it's not there. Um, But there is no biblical mandate or instruction to participate in politics. And as I told you, you know those people that come sometimes um, and they camp out in front of Grace Church with the big signs of aborted babies and and they protest, you know? Well, before our temple police usher them away, I like to get to them and have a little chat with them. And one time, this one guy was telling me, well, we have a biblical mandate to be involved in politics. And so I said, so what you're telling me then is, if you lived in China, you would have to be a communist. God would be requiring you to be communist, because you can't be involved in politics unless you're a communist. And so if there's a a biblical mandate, then you have to be a communist. At that point, he cast demons out of me. which I felt really good that day because then I went to the leader of the group after he kind of wasn't listening anymore. I went to the leader of the group, and he cast demons out of me too after a couple of sentences. And so I went to a Carrie Hardy and told him, I'm ready for service. <laughs> I'm doubly cleaned. But there's no mandate or instruction to, in, to be involved in politics. It's fine to be involved in politics. There's nothing wrong with it. It's perfectly proper, but it's not a biblical mandate. Most of our resources and energy should be directed to the heavenly kingdom, not the earthly republic. Set our minds on things above. Most of our resources, most of our energy, most of our efforts should be directed toward heaven and what God is doing in the world rather than what men are doing in the world. Uh, And again, I'm just still doing some, some basic intro but I want, to, want you to look in this regard to Matthew 6. And I want to take you to a verse that unfortunately has lost a lot of its power because of familiarity. You know how they say familiarity breeds contempt? Unfortunately, that happens sometimes with the Bible. 
There are passages that people are so familiar with, they become like bumper stickers. By the way, I'm on a campaign against bumper stickers. I hate bumper sticker logic. My students know this. I have yet to see a single bumper sticker in my lifetime that was worth the plastic it was printed on. Um, My favorite, meaning least favorite, Christian bumper sticker was one that was popular back in the 80s. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Okay, so what you're telling me is God says it, but he's waiting for you to confirm it or it's not settled. God said it. That settles it. What does whether you believe it or not have to do with it? Anyway, it's bumper sticker logic. <laughs> and unfortunately, we d- passages of Scripture are treated that way. Like, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, render to God the things that are God's. People turn it into a sing-songy thing, and it loses its actual potency and its actual power, that the fact that Jesus isn't even talking about politics there. Look up John MacArthur's sermon on it. He is talking about spiritual things. He's saying, see the image on the coin? Give that to Caesar. But then he says, give to, give to God what is God's. And the implied statement he's making is, where is God's image? We're made in the image of God. Give yourself to God. That's the real point of what Jesus says. It's not the... Anyway. So, <laughs> Matthew 6. Matthew 6, verse 20. Some of you will recognize the Sermon on the Mount. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Why? Verse 21. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, where you invest your money, where you invest your time, where you invest your energy is where your heart will be. So our primary investment of time, money, and resources needs to be in the heavenly kingdom, not the earthly republic. Because we want our treasure and our heart to be in God's work. Oh yeah, I put the verse up there. Good. All right. Another basic principle I want everybody to pay attention to this. If you're not paying attention yet, pay attention to this one. Society is immoral because men love the darkness, not because we lack a key law, a key judge, or a key president. Doesn't matter who we elect as president. Doesn't matter what law we pass. It doesn't matter which judge gets confirmed to the court. It does matter. Let me back up. It does matter. But ultimately, it doesn't matter. It won't change men's hearts. The reason that society is immoral, the reason that American society is going down the tubes morally, is because men love the darkness. It's because of John 3.19. It's not because of a lack of a vote on some political thing. People love their sin, that's why society is becoming more and more immoral. It's frankly amazing to me that the United States stayed as relatively moral as it did down through the years. And maybe we're making up for it now with a radical, <laughs> radical dive. Um, but anyway, that either way, it's not because of politics that society is immoral. Society is immoral because 
people are immoral because they love their sin. They love the darkness. And nothing that we do politically can change that. The only thing that can change that is the heavenly kingdom. The only thing that can do that is changing hearts. All right. So now we get to the actual message. That's all. This is, this is all. This is obvious. And if you don't agree with me, no, that's not what it is. It's what I think is obvious. So let's get to how to live biblically in political society given these introductory assumptions, all right? First of all, what must we do? I'm going to separate what we must do with what we may do, okay, which I think is an important distinction that isn't often made. What must we do? What does God require of us when it comes to government and politics? And the primary thing God requires of us is that we submit. Now we're at Romans 13 in our base camp. Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves." Now, Paul three ways says this applies to everybody, no matter where you are or who you are. He says, first of all, let every person be in subjection to government authorities. Last time I checked, that means every person. There's no exception to that. Secondly, he says to the governing authorities, why? Because there is no authority. He says this two ways, negatively and positively. There's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So which authorities get their authority from God? All of them. At least those that exist. I can't speak for Narnia. I can't speak for Gondor. Um, I can't speak for imaginary regimes, Plato's Republic. I can't speak for that. But for those that exist, they get their authority from God. There's no authority except from God. It applies to everybody. And by the way, just to hammer this home, it's important to know that when Paul wrote Romans, the emperor in Rome was Nero. If there were an exception, likely it's Nero. Some of you who know your, the- your historical theology know that there's a, whole re- there's a whole branch of theology that says that Nero was the Antichrist. Those who don't think that there's a future Antichrist, that that history is playing all of this stuff out, say Nero was the Antichrist. That's what a great guy he was. And Paul is writing to Romans in um, Rome (laughs) that is ruled by Nero, one of the worst, if not the worst, rulers in all of history. And he says be in subjection to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God. Those who resist are resisting the ordinance of God. That's a pretty serious thing, by the way. So, we could go on into this for quite a while, and I like to, but we don't have time. Um, Peter, in a parallel passage, 1 Peter 2, 
sort of a, a, the second best, if you will, passage on government and politics in the, in the Bible, 1 Peter 2. Uh, he says the same thing. Paul says it again in Titus 3.1, just in case we didn't get it in Romans. And by the way, let me just mention this, because I can't resist. It's really, really, really crucially important to understand Romans 13 in the context of the book of Romans. Paul spends 11 chapters telling people about Christianity, what it means to be saved, what salvation is, what it means to be a believer, etc. Great, tremendous theology, as you all know, and you all know the Romans Road, and so on and so forth, right? So 11 chapters of glorious theology of what Christianity is and what it means to be a believer. Then how does chapter 12 begin? I urge you, therefore... What's the therefore, therefore? To point back to those 11 chapters. Given these 11 chapters and your identity in Christ, I urge you to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. We need to think differently than the world. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2. We need to think differently than the world, Why? Because of chapters 1 to 11. So when we look at politics, he then goes through a number of things. The rest of the book of Romans is how to do this, how to think differently than the world in various categories. And in the middle of that is Romans 13. And so government, thinking about government and politics is a way that we're to think differently than the world. So when the world looks at some of this stuff and they say, you're nuts, you're crazy, you can't, what are you talking about? Because we're thinking the way the Lord thinks, not the way the world thinks. At least we should be. All right, so submit. Secondly, we need to obey. We need to obey. Titus 3.1, Paul separates this out. Titus 3.1, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Why does he separate this out? Why are there two different words here? Because they're two different words. Paul treats them like two different words because they are. Submit and obey. And this is where a lot of people, I'm dealing with this all the time in the area that I study, people try to conflate submission and obedience, and and that messes you up when you look at other passages like Acts 4 and 5, for example. Submission, or being in subjection, that's the same thing, And obedience are two different things. They're two different Greek words. The first one is hupotasso, and the second one is pytharkeo. They're different things. You all know what to obey is, at least if you were raised by decent parents. You know what to obey is, or if you've ever gotten a ticket for running a stop sign. You know what obey is. To obey is to do what the authority tells you to do, right? That's to obey. Submission or subjection is not that. Subjection is to recognize that they have authority over you. It's to recognize that the authority is your authority. That's what subjection is. Hupatasso, it's the lineup to take your orders. It's a military term. It's to recognize that there is that the authority over you is an authority over you and has authority over you. In the Old Testament, the term that's used for it is putting your neck under the yoke. 
That's the word picture that's used in the Old Testament. You're all familiar with animals that when they wanted to plow a straight field, right? They put a yoke on the animal so that they could steer it and make it go where they wanted it to go. But the animals didn't place their neck under the yoke. The yoke was put on them. But we, as believers, are to put our necks under the yoke. We are to recognize that the, the person guiding us has authority to guide us. It's from our perspective. They are our authority. We recognize their authority. And that they have authority to punish us if we don't obey. Daniel? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, for that matter, the Apostle Paul, who wrote Romans from jail. We'll get there in a minute. All right. Submit. Obey. Third, disobey. (laughs) What must we do? We must obey. Thirdly, what must we do? We must disobey. We must disobey when the government requires us to disobey God. I wanted to keep it all in one line, so I shortened it. Disobey in order to obey God was the best I could do. Disobey when the government requires us to disobey God. Acts 4, 19. Some of you are familiar with this. And some people, again, get mixed up on this because they conflate obedience and subjection, and so they think that this is making an exception and so on and so forth. But it's not. It's a different thing. Acts 4.19, Peter and John are before the council. Look at verse 19. Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. The council told them to stop preaching the gospel. All right? Council told them to stop preaching the gospel. First thing they say is, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. We recognize your authority over us. You can punish us if you want to. You be the judge of whether what we're doing is right. But, verse 20, we cannot stop speaking of what we have seen and heard. We're not going to obey you. We can't. We cannot obey you. We must obey God rather than men. But you can punish us if you want to. That's your right. Chapter 5. And by the way, they do punish them, send them back out, and guess what? They keep preaching the gospel. So they bring them back. Chapter 5, verse 28. The high priest says to them, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Verse 29. Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. But that doesn't have anything to do with subjection. We must obey God rather than men. It doesn't mean we're no longer subject to authority. It means we must disobey. But we are still subject, so you can put us in the fiery furnace if you think that's necessary. You can throw us in the lion's den if you think that's necessary. Because we have to obey God rather than men when you tell us to disobey God. So you've got to get submission or subjection and obedience. You've got to get that worked out in your head. These are two different things. The Bible is not inconsistent. The Bible doesn't tell people to obey at some point but not obey at another point. And be, you know, it's, it's two different things. 
Daniel was disobedient because he had to be. He remained in subjection. He did not violate Romans 13.2. He did not resist authority. He didn't organize a rebellion. He didn't take up arms. Neither did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm sorry, I'm passionate about this. Fourth, and this is, there's so much, oh gosh, so much more to do on this. All right. Fourth, we must honor and respect those in government. All right, here comes a challenge. Here's my challenge for you, not for this week, but for the next four years. And this is a huge challenge for Americans because Americans have something in their DNA passed down from 1776 that causes them to be anti-authoritarian, that is, to rebel against authority. We are to honor and respect, verse 7, Romans 13, after he's told what government does, by the way, which is restrain evil. That's government's job, to restrain evil. That's verses 3 and 4. Verse 7, render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due them, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, when he says to those, honor to those to whom it is due, that doesn't mean the individual person. It doesn't mean the individual person has to earn your respect. It's because of the office. It's the position that they hold that you must respect. You must respect them because of the office. And I, I, I confess, I have to confess regularly on this issue. I have a slight bent towards sarcasm. Very minor tinge. And so I have trouble sometimes with political leaders who I think are idiots. Now, see, I've got to confess that again. (laughs) We are to honor and respect those in government because of the office they hold, not because they earned our respect. We're to pray for. Pray for. The for there is in italics. Oh, yeah, I put it that way. Pray for those in government. For the next four years, you need to be praying for Joe Biden. You need to be praying for Kamala Harris. You need to be praying for Nancy Pelosi. You need to be praying for whoever ends up in charge of the Senate, which is going to be interesting. Um, it's what, here's something really interesting. Most of the time I hear evangelicals in the 21st century who aren't happy about things, talking about praying against this, or praying against that, or praying this against this in the government. You know what? The Bible never tells us to do that, Old or New Testament. God never tells us to pray against government. But the Bible does tell us to pray for the government. 1 Timothy 2, also Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 27, the people of Israel had been carried off as captives They've been carried off as captives to another land, to Babylon. And what does God tell them to do? He says, pray for the welfare of the city. And by the way, both that passage and 1 Timothy 2 has the same promise or the same condition, depending on how you look at it. And that is that in its welfare, you will have welfare. We pray for the government because the government's job is to restrain evil so that we can live in, in political society, in peace. You don't want that? That's what government does. So we pray for the government. We don't pray against 
the government. At least there's no instruction to do it. Maybe it's okay, depending on how you look at imprecatory prayer and whatnot. Um, but there's no instruction to do it. But we are instructed to pray for the government. What else should we do? What must we do? We must be a prophetic witness to the truth. We must be a prophet, not a pathetic witness, a prophetic witness to the truth. Like John the Baptist was, like Jesus was. We must be a prophetic witness. I love taking the students through an incident and then the life of Paul. I'll just summarize it for you without taking you through it. Jesus actually comes and visits Paul in person. Did you know that? Have you ever seen that verse? Jesus comes and visits Paul. I've never heard anybody preach on that verse, amazingly enough. I mean, I'm sure Dr. MacArthur hid it when he was going through Acts. But um, Jesus comes and visits... You know how to be an apostle you had to have seen the risen Christ? And everybody says, well, yeah, Paul at Damascus Road. Wasn't just the Damascus Road. Damascus. Damascus Road. Jesus came and visited him in his cell when he was a prisoner. And you know what he told him? He said, just as you witnessed to my cause in Jerusalem, you must witness in Rome also. From that point on, Paul knows what? He's headed to Rome. Some of you make travel plans and you're a little sketchy about it. Paul knows, I'm headed to Rome. Jesus said so. And so he decides he'll make the Romans pay for it. So when they arrest him, he appeals to Caesar which, by the way, every Roman citizen had a right to do. No one ever did it, because most of the Caesars were crazy, and if you appealed to them, they bothered their day, and they'd off with his head. But Paul did. He appealed to Caesar. Why? Because Caesar was in Rome, and so the Romans had to take him to Rome. And then the great verse is one of those verses that we skip over when we read the Bible, the last chapters of each epistle. You know, tell Mark to bring this, and say hi to Susie, and Bob says hello. You know, all that stuff in the last, the ch- last chapter of the epistles. Well, you know what? Sometimes there's important stuff stuck in there. Philippians 4.22, Paul, Paul says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. All the saints greet you, the believers, especially those of Caesar's household. Why are there saints in Caesar's household? Because Paul went to Rome and was a prophetic witness to the truth. We could look at uh, Paul before Felix and Agrippa, the governor and the the king, quote-unquote, as he's on one of his trials. And at one point, Agrippa sarcastically says, well, in a short time, you'll convince me to be a Christian. Now, he didn't really mean it. He was being sarcastic. But what's the point? What is Paul talking about in his trial? Well, you see, I have this uh, thing here. I'm really not guilty because of line 17 clause A of the law. No, he's preaching the gospel to him. He's being a prophetic witness. Jesus said in Matthew 10 to the apostles, that's what you're going to do. You're going to witness for my cause before governors and kings. How do they get before governors of kings? Because they get arrested and they're subject to authority. And so they go before governors and kings and then they preach the gospel. Oh, we'll skip this one. No, we can't. I'd like to. Uh, I'm a, uh, Leanne and I are in Sojourners, and, and Dr. Varner likes to say at various times, if, I, if I'd written the Bible, I wouldn't have put it this way. Well, if I'd written the Bible, there wouldn't be any command to pay taxes. Uh, but there is, throughout the Bible. And, by the way, all of them, 
all of the taxes that you should pay. Not, you know, if you have legitimate exemptions and so forth, but if you get paid some way that the government can't trace for doing a job and you, you're, you know, a referee of a football game and they just hand you a personal check and, well, you know, the government can't really trace this. Or ironically, if you preach at a church and they pay you with a personal check and the government can't trace that, you need to put, you need to declare that as your income. My wife, do we keep track of that when I preach? All right. So pay taxes. We won't go into that. Jesus, by the way, addresses the two excuses that people give for not paying their taxes. He addresses taxation twice. Each one of them addresses one of the two excuses that people in the church give for not paying their taxes. And in both cases, I'll just give you the, the summary. He says, pay your taxes. This is not a valid excuse. Uh, and then develop a biblical approach to issues. Uh, I don't have to prove that because that's the whole Bible says that. Develop a biblical approach to whatever you do. And be discerning. Again, both sides want to manipulate you, not just the side you disagree with. Both sides want to manipulate you. All right, so that's what we must do. Wow, I've got four minutes to do. All right, what may we do? What may we do? That is, nothing in Scripture prohibits these actions. I mean, we can hold public office. We have the examples of Joseph and Daniel, for example. We can work in a political occupation. It's not a prohibited occupation in Scripture. You can be involved in politics. You can be a congressman. You can be a representative, an assemblyman, whatever, uh, or work for one of those people. That's a perfectly legitimate occupation. Scripture nowhere prohibits that. We can vote, with the exception, if the, if the person, if there's no one worthy of your vote, if your choices on the ballot are Hitler, Stalin, Satan, and Anderson, then you just shouldn't vote. There's no obligation to vote. You can vote. It's a good thing to do if you know what you're doing. I don't think everybody should vote. I know that sounds shocking, but not everyone should vote. If you don't know what you're doing, you shouldn't vote. If you know what you're doing, you should vote, unless there's no one on the ballot worthy of your vote. In California, you can write in. I've voted for my father-in-law for senator three times. I've voted for John Stead for governor a couple of times. In 2018, I voted for myself for one of those positions just for fun. If both candidates are pro-abortion, then I can't vote for either of them. So I either don't vote or I pick somebody and I write it in. That's just my own personal thing. That's my own personal standard. I'm not saying it should be your standard. And I don't vote for somebody just because they're pro-life, but I cannot vote for them if they're not. My own personal standard. Um, It's a civic duty to vote. It's not a biblical duty. It's not a Christian duty. It's not a biblical mandate. We can take advantage of privileges given us by the state. These two passages that are here are examples where Paul does that. I just mentioned one of them. He had the, the being a Roman citizen, they gave him the right to appeal to Caesar, which he does. Another point, they're about to beat him, about to whip him. And he says, hey, by the way, is it lawful for you to... Whip a Roman citizen without, you know, oh, you're a Roman citizen? 
So we can take advantage of privileges that the state gives us. Uh, I believe it's perfectly okay to protest and demonstrate. There's a prominent pastor of a large local church who doesn't necessarily think so. Um, I'm just giving you my opinion. Um, I don't think there's anything in Scripture that says that you can't do that. You can uh, volunteer and contribute for political causes in moderation, seeking first his kingdom. And what, by the way, where you put your donations tells you something about your own spiritual situation. I'll just leave it there. What's the ultimate context? The ultimate context. God is sovereign over the rise and fall of nations. Everything follows his plan. If it happened, it's God's plan. God is not surprised. I was going to say by Tuesday, but I'll just leave it. God is not surprised. God is never surprised. It all comes according to his plan. Job 12.23, he makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. Job 37.13, which I think is the, the top verse in the book of Job, whether for correction or for his word or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. Loving kindness there, by the way, is grace. Just let it share. Hebrew word, I said. Um, whether for correction or for his word or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. Isaiah 14, surely just as I, this is God speaking, surely just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand. This is the plan devised against the whole earth, not just Israel, against the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out against the nations. For the Lord of hosts has planned who can frustrate it. God is sovereign. His plan happens unless you're stronger than him, unless you can pull back his hand. Now, why do I bring these up? This reality should give us great peace, contentment, and confidence. I wrote that before Tuesday, and I reaffirm it now. This reality should give us great peace, contentment, and confidence. God is on his throne. I received, I don't know, several dozen emails from people asking me after, and my, my answer is always one sentence. God is on his throne. God is on his throne. That should help us get by, just slightly, get by. God is on his throne. Father, we thank you for government. We thank you that you provided this human institution to help to restrain evil so that you wouldn't have to bring another man-made flood, or excuse me, another flood to wipe out mankind. And Father, we ask that you would help us to respect those in authority because of their office, because of the function that they do. Father, we ask that you'd help us to be obedient to authority, help us to be subject to authority. And Father, by that, that we may glorify you. Father, as we look at the examples of Daniel and Shadrach and the others, we see the verses afterwards in which the kings then said, this God of Daniel, this God 
of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the true God because they had faith in you and they remained subject and you delivered them and therefore you got the glory. And so, Father, help us to give you glory by being obedient and by being subject to authority. Calm our hearts, Father, concerning the political world, the world we live in, the social world. Calm our hearts with the understanding that nothing is surprising you, but you are in control. This is your plan. And Father, frankly, for us who are Americans, help us to get past the sin of taking for granted the fact that we haven't been challenged, that we haven't had to suffer like so many other people have. And if it's our time to suffer, then Father, help us to be subject, help us to lean on you, because overall, Father, we want to place our trust in you and not in anything else. Amen.